Well, with that, brothers and sisters, we'll ask our brother Steve to come forward and give us his Wednesday class on lessons from an inf imperfect ecclesia. I can hardly read my own writing. Thanksgiving in the midst of schism. Brother Steve. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's, uh, I'm really enjoying the time with the teens. They're a wonderful group of kids. What we spoke about today is really the same thing that we'll be discussing here in the adult class. By way of review, yesterday we talked about the birth of the Christadelphian Ecclesia at Corinth. And that's really what it was, wasn't it? It was the Christadelphian Ecclesia, an Ecclesia comprised of brothers and sisters baptized into Christ, having believed the same things that were taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the apostles. And so when we looked at yesterday, when we look back at yesterday's class, we see that Paul arrived in Corinth from Athens. And it was there that he stayed for a year and a half preaching and teaching the gospel. We spoke yesterday about Paul's preaching strategy. How the first thing that he did upon arriving at the city was to go to Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers. And it was there that he began to work himself as a tent maker. And we spoke about how archaeologists have gone through that area with a fine-tooth comb, and they've discovered all sorts of archaeological findings relating to the Ismithian Games. They found the theater. They found the stadium. They found all sorts of things that relate to those games, but the one thing that they never found was any type of Olympic village, any place of lodging. And it leads us to understand and to realize that the people who flocked to the Ismithian games every two years came in tents. And so as a preacher, what perfect opportunity it gave him as a tent maker to set up shop in the Agora where hundreds if not thousands of people would come through. And it was a trade where Paul could not only work, but work stitching the leather and talk to those who came to him. And it gave him that great opportunity to share the good news of Christ crucified and what that meant. The second thing Paul did from a preaching standpoint was he identified individuals and areas of influence. And so as a preacher, he went on every Sabbath day to the synagogue. And we looked at that photograph of the lintel post that had been found, the lintel post that had the inscription, the synagogue of the Hebrews. And we spoke about how the Bible just comes alive when we see these things. And we can imagine the Apostle Paul walking each Sabbath day beneath that signpost and going into the Sabbath, going into the synagogue, and preaching and teaching those Jews about a better way, about the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews, of course, believed in the Messiah, and Paul was there to identify the Messiah for them that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And soon, individuals, one by one, and family by family, accepted the gospel message. 
And they were baptized into Christ. And it started with the synagogue ruler. And the synagogue ruler and his whole family became our brothers and sisters. And we spoke yesterday about how upon the defection of that first synagogue ruler, the congregation there chose another man to replace him, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes, in a united attack against Paul, presented what was most likely the greatest threat to the gospel. And that he was trying to get Paul not only thrown in prison, but he was trying to get the message of Christianity outlawed. And Paul, as we have done, I'm sure, spent countless hours lying in his bed, unable to sleep because of the passion and the love that he had for the gospel and for the tension that he faced, either within his ecclesia or within the community to whom he was preaching. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision to comfort him. And we spoke yesterday about how Jesus can comfort us and how he actively works in our lives. And how he can pray for us, just as he prayed for the disciples when Jesus was on the earth, he prayed for them. So too can our Lord pray for us today. We spoke about how Jesus has command over things in heaven and things on earth, and how it's likely that when Jesus said to Paul, I have many men in this city, that he could have been referring certainly to those who had not yet accepted the gospel. But perhaps he was speaking of angels that would protect him and comfort him. And perhaps it's the same with us, that the Lord Jesus Christ in times of angst, in times of difficulty, can send angels to protect and to comfort us. And so, when the united attack against Paul was lodged, the Roman proconsul threw it out. And the congregation of the Hebrews turned on that man, Sosthenes, their new synagogue leader. And they beat him. And we spoke of how Paul most likely came to that man who was likely alone, bleeding and bruised. And Paul demonstrated the love of Christ. Demonstrated to him what Jesus meant when he said that we are to love our enemies. And soon this man who had been called, accepted the gospel, and he too became a brother in Christ. And when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we discover that the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, was written by none other than the Apostle Paul and our brother Sosthenes. Today what we'll do is we will explore the beginning of this first letter to the Corinthians. And my objective is threefold. I'd like for us to understand that real and serious problems came into fruition at this ecclesia. That there were real problems of a doctrinal and a moral, pro uh, moral areas. We're going to see that the brothers and sisters came to Paul because it was Paul who had established the ecclesia. It was Paul who had the credibility, who had the vested interest in the brothers and sisters there. And so they came to him seeking his guidance, seeking his advice, seeking his counsel. 
And we'll speak about how then Paul writes 1 Corinthians to offer those things, to offer his instruction and his guidance on both moral and doctrinal issues. What you see on the screen here is a slide that highlights the amount of time that Paul spent interacting with the brothers and sisters at the Christadelphian Ecclesia there in Corinth. We can identify pretty precisely through the Roman records of who was proconsul in Achaia that Paul spoke and began to preach the gospel there sometime around 50 A.D., And as we know, he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, and after which, he sailed across the sea to the city of Ephesus. And it was from Ephesus that the letter to the Corinthians was written. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul makes an allusion to a letter that he had written previously. This was the previous letter where he provided advice about a moral issue. The ecclesia misunderstood Paul's advice. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he provides a bit of clarification. The point was that Paul, they thought, had told them not to associate with immoral people. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, no, you've misunderstood me. What I'm saying is you ought not to associate with a brother in Christ who acts immorally. Otherwise, how would you preach the gospel in a city such as Corinth that's filled with such immorality? And he drew the distinction between those who were immoral living in the world and those who were members of the body of Christ and who lived immorally. And so the point is, Paul from a very early point in his interactions with this ecclesia began helping them to deal with with problems. And his help and his guidance was not a one-time deal. Paul, on and on, year after year after year after year, exhibited patience as he encouraged that ecclesia to act in a Christ-like way, to continue to believe the things that had been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, those things that he taught them. And so over a period of five or six years, Paul worked with with the brothers and sisters there in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that was read for us today, in verse 11 actually, we're going to see that a report went to Paul while he was in Ephesus, that the members from Chloe's household, Sister Chloe, they sent a report to Paul saying these are issues that are going on. Further, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that brothers and sisters from the meeting wrote specific questions to Paul, saying, will you help us answer these specific things? And as a result of those questions and as a result of Chloe's report, what we have in our hands in 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 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is his response to that report and to those questions. And so that's what we'll focus on. Now when we say that there are real and serious problems at the Corinthian Ecclesia, 
we're not we're not minimizing those things. There truly were real problems. What I'd like to do right now is I'd like to read a poem or the start of a poem to you. The poem is entitled The Perfect Ecclesia. I looked for the perfect ecclesia, one that was pure and right, a fellowship free from error, completely holy in his sight. It would be so perfect to men who were so true that they would work together with a bond as strong as glue. I couldn't wait to go there. Such harmony there would be. What uplifting exhortations. Such hymns of praise and glee. When I found the perfect meeting, it was quite a sight to see. It included God and Christ, but it excluded me. And I mention the beginning of this poem because there is a tendency, I think, for us to look historically at ecclesias from the time of the first century to the time of previous generations and to think that things were perfect, that they had it all right, and that we are struggling in some unique way. The tensions within our meeting and within our families are new to us. but we'll see that that's not the case. Problems have been around in ecclesias since the very beginning. And what we see on the slide here are some of the problems that the brothers and sisters in Corinth faced. And I'd like for us to take a few minutes to look at those things so that we can see things in perspective. The first thing that you'll notice is in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, there were some brothers and sisters in Christ, some who had been baptized into the one body, who came to think that there was no resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is No resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him If, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Can you imagine that there were individuals whom Paul referred to as his brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, who denied the resurrection? And not only were the problems in Corinth doctrinal in nature, there were some serious moral lapses as well. Turn with me to chapter 5. Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. Remember in our first class when we spoke about the counterfeit gods of the city of Corinth, of the immorality that seemed to you know, go right through that city. 
And here Paul is saying there is a kind of immorality here in the midst of the brothers and sisters that not even the pagans commit. And he is speaking, of course, of that incestuous relationship that a brother had with his father's wife. The pagans outlawed that. And here it seems as though the ecclesia was proud of it. The ecclesia, there were some in the meeting who thought that the forgiveness and the grace that we have in Christ allowed them to do these things. That as a result, everything was permissible. And consequently, Paul addresses not only the action of the brother who called himself a brother and acted immorally, he was to be put out of their fellowship so that he might individually understand that he was in danger of the judgment. And so that he would miss the fellowship and the love of his brothers and sisters and correct his ways. And the beauty of the situation is that when we come to 2 Corinthians, we discover that this man was in fact reformed. But this action spoke was was addressed only to the individual. And there were some in that ecclesia who disagreed with Paul's judgment that he should be cast out. And yet they remained as members of that meeting. So the situation was that there were moral issues here. If we look at chapter 6, verse 12, we get a sense for the thinking of some in the meeting. I'm using the New International Version today. This modern version helps me with an understanding of how the letter was written. And one of the things the NIV does in verse 12, is it puts in quotation marks the phrase, everything is permissible for me. It seems as though these quotes were Paul regurgitating to the brothers and sisters their thinking. In other words, there were some in the ecclesia that thought that because of the grace given them through baptism into Christ, that everything was permissible. We see this in the Romans, right? Think about the chapter that's read at baptisms. It begins... In Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And this was the same issue that Paul seems to be addressing here when they say, everything is permissible for me. And so he he highlights that. He He uses that same expression and gives it back to them. And he says, everything is permissible for me, but I'll be not mastered by anything. And look at verse 16. Paul writes and says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. And so it's clear to me and perhaps to you that there were brothers and sisters at the Christadelphian Ecclesia in Corinth, a city that was inundated with immorality. There were brethren and sisters there who were slipping back into those evil ways. And so Paul addresses that. And we see, therefore, that the situations that Paul is addressing are both doctrinal and moral. They deal with the mind and with the judgment. In chapter 6, we see that the disagreements among the brethren were so severe that at times 
brothers would take brothers to court to be judged by pagans. And Paul said to them, wouldn't it be better that you were defrauded than to go to a pagan for judgment? Look at chapter 11. The highlight of our week, I think we'll all agree, is the time where we can get together to fulfill the command of our Lord. When we think of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us in dying so that we might have the the gift of eternal life, so that we might have that opportunity, the Lord Jesus Christ said, do this in remembrance of Me. And for us, we get together on Sunday mornings to share the bread and the wine in such a wonderful way to remember the body of Christ. And yet, in Corinth, there were brothers and sisters there who were getting drunk at the memorial service. Chapter 11, verse 20. In fact, oh, I'm in 2 Corinthians. When you come together, Paul writes, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, that these are the sorts of things that were going, going on at the Christadelphian Ecclesia in Corinth? In chapter 8, we discover that there were some brothers and sisters there who wondered whether idols were real. Chapter 8, verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. And look at verse 7. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And so here again, we see real and difficult problems within that ecclesia. And the last thing that I'll point out is that throughout 1 Corinthians and more in 2 Corinthians, we see that there were members of the congregation there that attacked the credibility of the Apostle Paul. They attacked the credibility of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, Paul begins to address these things. But I'd only suggest, brothers and sisters, that there is a real warning to me in these verses. And perhaps to you. If members in the ecclesia there in Corinth could attack a pillar of the early community like Paul, who had been selected by Jesus, if they could attack the man who put his life on the line to preach the Gospel, I need to be careful that I don't go out and attack those who disagree with me. You see, when ecclesial problems develop, it's it's very easy to be worldly, isn't it? 
It's very easy to find reasons to dislike those who disagree with us. It's very easy to dislike a particular brother or sister or to keep a record of wrongs in an effort to destroy their credibility. And as a result, we need to resist the temptation to tear down rather than build up. The reason that we have to avoid this type of behavior, brothers and sisters, is because it is so damaging. It's so destructive. It's destructive not only to the individual whom we target, but it's destructive to ourselves. It's destructive to our family. It's destructive to our ecclesia. It's destructive to the teens who are trying to determine whether or not they want to commit their lives to serving God rather than man. And so rather than biting and devouring ourselves, we need to let the love of Christ lead us. We need to love the least of these, my brethren. And we see the Apostle Paul demonstrating that Christ-like love throughout his ministry to the brothers and sisters in Corinth. We first saw it with the way that he lovingly approached Sosthenes, the bleeding synagogue ruler. But we also see it in the way he interacts with the ecclesia after having received reports of this type of behavior and these sorts of doctrinal lapses. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians can be divided into four parts. There is the introduction. He then responds to the reports that Chloe's household delivered to him, and he addresses these reports in particular. And it's not until chapter 7 that he begins to answer the specific questions of the brothers and sisters who wrote to him. And finally, in chapter 16, he begins to conclude his message to the congregation. And I find it particularly interesting to consider what it must have been like for the brothers and sisters who wrote to the apostle. Because the questions that they had were questions about things such as the celibacy or marriage. They had questions about the brothers within their meeting who were uncertain about the reality of idols, and they said, let's ask Paul. There were a whole series of questions about the role of submission and esteem towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it mean, they asked, to be submissive? And how does that relate to the role of women in worship? Or how does that relate to the etiquette at the Lord's Supper? And we'll speak of these things in more detail, God willing, as the week goes on. How does it relate to 
the use of Holy Spirit gifts? Are some gifts more important than other gifts? And then, of course, they had the questions about the resurrection. And what I find amazing is to think what it must have been like for those individuals to finally receive Paul's response to the report and to their questions. Imagine them gathering around as this epistle was first delivered back from Ephesus to Corinth. Imagine as the news got out, the Apostle Paul has written, the answers are here, and they gather around and they start to go through the letter. They go through the first paragraph, and the second paragraph, and the third paragraph. And it's not until chapter 7, halfway through the letter, that he begins to address what they thought were the most important issues. He doesn't begin to address the, the, the question about the resurrection of Christ until the end of the letter. And to me, I find that remarkable. And so let's see where Paul placed his priorities. So please open the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's here that we see the introductory salutation. We see that the letter was written not only by Paul, but by Brother Sosthenes, the one one who received the the love, the Christ-like love that Paul extended to him. And in verse 2, we're told that this letter was written to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. When I read these verses, brothers and sisters, two things jump out at me. The first is that the letter was written to those who had been baptized into the body of Christ. Those who had been called by Christ Jesus. Those who had been sanctified by Christ Jesus. We read the other night with our brother Mick from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the one body. And the one body we read there in 1 Corinthians 12 is comprised of all those who have been baptized. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2. And this letter, the second thing that jumps out at me, is that this letter was written not only to the brothers and sisters in Corinth, but to the surrounding ecclesias, to all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, includes you and it includes me. You see, when our Heavenly Father caused the Holy Scriptures to be recorded for us and to be preserved. It seems clear that He understood and knew that problems within the ecclesia weren't limited to only the first century meetings. Because problems have infiltrated ecclesias throughout the many generations. And we can learn from their troubles. And we can learn how Paul advised them and encouraged them. And so this letter to Corinthians is also written to you and me. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in verse 4, I find some amazing words. If I had received a report about my boys, for example, doing the things that were reported to the Apostle Paul about his brothers and sisters, Paul refers to himself as their father at one point in this letter, about these brothers and sisters, I ask myself, how would I respond? How would I deal with all of these troubles and problems? And I'm sorry to say that I don't think my first response would be the way Paul responded. What Paul did was he first and foremost assured the brothers and sisters of his love and of his compassion. He says, I always give thanks for you. What a wonderful exhortation. What a wonderful example that we should try to develop within our meetings the atmosphere where should one of our members struggle morally or doctrinally, that they can feel comfortable coming to us and saying, Brother Steve, I'm struggling with these issues. And that they could know and feel assured that I would still give thanks for them. I'd like to share a personal story with you about my family. As many of you know, my oldest son went off to college this year. And for those of you who haven't had a child go off to college yet, you're in for quite a surprise. And for those of you who have seen a child go off, you know the angst that a parent feels. Well, when Paul left for college, we sat down, and I told him that I was going to do something every day. And I set the alarm on my phone to ring at 11.11 every single morning. The only reason I chose 11.11 is because on a digital clock, it seems to be you know, something that jumps out at you. And I said, Paul, when you see 11.11 on a clock, I want you to know that I've prayed for you. And it was wonderful. And I made it a point to pray for him every single day. And if we can do that, not only for those whom we love, like our children, but if we can do that for individuals like Sosthenes, who despitefully used the Apostle Paul, if we can do that for those who are struggling with those sorts of moral and doctrinal problems that we see in Corinth, and follow the example of Paul, how much greater will we be individually and as a community to name individuals in prayer? I personally found such strength in my relationship not only with Paul, my son, but my relationship with my Heavenly Father, 
grew so much stronger. And so every morning at 11.11, when my alarm goes off, I pray for my wife and for my children. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here in Ontario. And we should all do the same. And so Paul began his letter giving thanks. I always give thanks for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we come down to verses 9 and 10. And I've put these verses on the screen. It says, God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. There are two points that I'd like to make from these two verses. In verse 9, we see clearly that the individuals to whom Paul was writing were his brothers and sisters in Christ. These were written, these words were written to the church of God in Corinth. We know from verse 9 that all of these individuals were called into fellowship. And as a result of having been called into fellowship with God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they enjoyed membership in God's amazing family. We read of that in 1 John verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. And these verses are likely familiar to us. But the point is, the individuals that Paul was writing to were in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ. And as members of God's amazing family, they were in fellowship one with another as brothers and sisters. And when we come to verse 10, what we see is Paul advising the brothers and sisters there not to divide. He was saying, you are in fellowship together. Do not divide, but exhort one another so that you can become of one mind in one judgment. We know from having just gone through this laundry list of difficult situations, both morally and doctrinally, that the ecclesia was not of one mind. The ecclesia's judgment on matters relating to the incestuous brother was not unified. There were some that wanted to withdraw fellowship from this man, and there were others that didn't. And in 2 Corinthians, we received that there were some that wanted to bring him back into fellowship, and there were others that didn't. And while they didn't see eye to eye in judgment there, they remained together for the specific purpose of having the ability to exhort and to encourage and to rebuke and to correct and to train 
the goal, the objective, is to have that one mind, to have that one thought. But the only way, it seems to me, that Paul could recommend that they do that was to be together so that they could receive those corrections, so that they could provide that encouragement to one another. There are three examples that we'll give that point to that conclusion. I've told you a little bit about my oldest son who's gone off to school. I'll tell you that my wife Sandy and I are in love. We have a wonderful marriage. We've been together for a long, long time, and we are great friends. But like your marriages, there are times when Sandy and I don't see eye to eye. There are times when we disagree on matters. There are times that we disagree on how to discipline our children and all sorts of other things. And yet, as a husband and wife, we are one flesh. Not only in a physical nature, of course, but in a spiritual nature. We are one, striving and encouraging each other towards the kingdom, that we will remain on that path. We encourage each other to endure to the end. And it would be wrong for me to say to Sandy when we disagree that we are to separate. How could we become one if we were to divorce? And so there's a very practical example of the one flesh of a husband and wife and how despite differences at times, we are to remain together to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to be of one mind and one judgment. We looked earlier this week about the one body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'd like to bring you there because there are two points in this chapter that I think are applicable to us. Mick did a great job in describing the diversity in our ecclesias. And when we looked the other day at the brothers and sisters who were named throughout the different accounts in the New Testament. Individuals who were members of the, the Christadelphian Ecclesia at Corinth. There was Sosthenes, there was Phoebe, there was Erastus. There were all these individuals. We, indica we indicated that there was a huge diversity of brothers and sisters. There were some of noble birth. There were some poor. There were some rich. There were some Greeks. There were some Jews. There was this tremendous diversity and yet, despite that diversity, they were one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. And the reality is there are going to be times in our ecclesial lives when we feel out of step with our brothers and sisters. And perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you've felt out of step, that you're not welcome, that you don't fit in. And there's sometimes a temptation to walk away. And sadly, we see it. We see individuals who were baptized into Christ not enduring to the end. We see individuals who were given the gift 
of eternal life saying, I'm really not interested in that. And they go back to living worldly ways. And what Paul says here is that when you find yourself at odds, when you don't feel as though you fit in, you must remain part of the body. Verse 16, And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And so sometimes we all want to be the eye, but if we're the ear, we still have a job to do. And we're part of the body. And we need to remain. We can't go it alone. And Paul highlights that fact. And conversely, in verse 27, in verse uh, 21 rather, he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And we see therefore that there is a responsibility both to remain in the body when we sometimes feel at odds, and also a responsibility to never say to members of the body, because you don't see the way I see as an eye, you must leave. And we see this throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's encouraging the ecclesia who were following after different leaders. Let's come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The ecclesia was following different individuals. Some followed Apollos. Some followed Cephas. Some followed Paul. You can imagine how it would be attractive to identify yourselves. And we do it today, don't we? I do it myself. I I connect with certain individuals. And so Apollos, we know, was this wonderful orator. He was a brother who could speak with such eloquence. And consequently, there would be some within the community who would say, you know, I feel an attraction to this man. And they would deem themselves followers of Apollos. And there might be others who say, I follow Cephas. Cephas was one of the original apostles. He was one of the, one of the first. I'm going to align myself with, with his way of thinking. And others might say, I'm going to follow Paul because it was Paul that introduced the gospel to us here in Corinth. And the apostle Paul sees these things and corrects them and says, you can't be divided. You need to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now that word there, perfectly united, is a Greek word that's used in another place in Scripture. It's found in the account in Matthew, chapter 4, verse 21. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. The word mending in Matthew 4 is the exact same word as perfectly united in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1. And Paul uses this word to indicate to the ecclesia that the fabric of fellowship that was beginning to fray in Corinth needed to be mended. The fabric of fellowship needed to be mended. It was not acceptable for some to follow Cephas and some to follow Paul and some to follow Apollos. Instead, they needed to mend that fabric of fellowship and they needed to be one body in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul came to Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half. He had great love and affection for the brothers and sisters there. He heard disturbing reports about moral lapses and difficulties in doctrinal matters. And when these reports were brought to his attention, he responded. And when we see this list of difficulties that brothers and sisters in Christ were going through, Paul put his first priority on encouraging the brethren to be of one mind. To mend the fabric of fellowship. In the balance of our week this week, in the remaining two classes, we'll continue to look at how Paul helped the ecclesia. And in the meantime, brothers and sisters, we can conclude with some thoughts from the Apostle Paul. And I'd like to read from Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so we give thanks to God the Father through Christ for our calling, for being members of His wonderful family. And we look forward to that day when we will be one not only with Paul and Sosthenes and all the brothers and sisters in Corinth, but with all the saints of old. And together as the body of Christ, we will fill the earth with God's knowledge and glory. We pray for that day.